don't know if any of you ever come across this little book uh, called Prison to Praise by a bloke called Carruthers. Anyone here read that? Really, it's an old book. There's a, a few of you. I really recommend you get on Amazon or whatever you use. Other bookshops are available. And there's this book called Prison to Praise, and it's written by this man who was a... He was a convict, he was a villain, and then he, he met Christ and his life transformed and he became an army chaplain. And he developed this, uh, through reading the Bible, this whole mindset of giving thanks in all circumstances, like for everything, like living a life of complete thankfulness, no matter all the pressure that was around you. And through that saw dynamic changes in people's situations, life circumstances, all sorts of things. It's a it's a beautiful book. It's it's a small one. You can read it literally. You could read it by the time you you bought a large latte in Costas. By the time you get to the end, you probably demolished the book as well. So it's well worth it. It just costs you a couple of quid. But I think there's real power in giving thanks because there's so much in the world that makes you want to look at the ground. As you know, I've preached this so many times and Matt just captured it brilliantly. There's so much that makes you want to look in a ditch, look at the ground, but actually the Spirit of God calls us to look up and give thanks in all circumstances. That's what the Bible says, isn't it? Like even thanks when someone's really done you in. When someone's done your legs in, you know, finding something to give thanks for is such a powerful thing. I can't explain it, but I, I believe it pleases the Lord. But I notice there's so much around me every day that will drag my heart and spirit down. Do you know what I mean? Work stuff, life stuff, money stuff, whatever. But when we give thanks, it's a very powerful thing. I just think it's a, it's a spiritual principle. I don't think it's a magic formula. I think it, I think it has to be real. I don't, I don't, <laughs> like, uh, I don't think you want to say, oh, I really hate my neighbour, but I think I... Let's say thanks, and then he might disappear. Thank you for my neighbour. Oh, he's still here. <laughs> you know, I don't think so. I think like you've really got to genuinely want that in your heart. But uh, so it's not a formula, but it's a very powerful book. So it's called Prison to Praise. Anyway, on that note, it's uh, um, how many years is it now since we moved to Ches Vegas? Is it eight years in September? Yeah. So, uh, so uh, what is that? So nearly seven and a half years ago. Um, Karen and I were packing up our house in Somerset, in, in Midsummer Norton, bodies everywhere, actually. And um, we were, we were um, our stuff was being loaded onto a, a lorry. In fact, the lorry was, was loaded when this happened. And you know what it's like when you move house? I'm sure most of you here at some point have experienced moving house. We've done it a bunch of times for work reasons. Everything's on the lorry, and what you're waiting for is the phone call before the phone gets you know, transferred over to someone else. You're waiting for the phone call. And the phone call is, the money's gone from the solicitor, it's all happened, you know, the money's come into them, money's gone out and completion has happened and the keys are waiting for you in Chesterfield. So I thought wisdom is, do not move the lorry until the money's hit the account and we know the keys are waiting for us in the door of our house on stores road. That's, that's what I thought. So by now, everything's loaded up. And then I get a phone call from my solicitor that says, we're £10,000 short from the bank. Now all my stuff is loaded up on a lorry, so we can't complete. 
Now, I know looking at your faces, none of you are feeling the tension I'm reliving right now, but that was actually not a good moment. You know, I got my kids a, a smaller back then, a little, and you know, I've got Flick about to get in the back of the car. We've got a cat, we've got a capture and pour into a cat carrier and all that kind of thing. Uh, and you think, oh. So I phoned up my bank, which will remain nameless, and I said, um, and it took ages. You know, you get the music, ding, 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 ding. You're like, I don't want the music. I want to talk to someone. And then it went to an automated thing. Are you phoning about your mortgage? It was not. It was like a robot voice. Are you phoning about your mortgage? Yes or no? Yes. Is it your? Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then it took me through to a call center in India. And I'm, I mean, I'm not being, I'm not being bigger to do this, but literally, I, we did not understand each other. I, I sat next to a friend of the Queen for dinner this week. I didn't understand what he was saying. I'm not going to say who it was, but he was like this. He was going, oh, it's very good. And I was going, and then I went, Yes, mate, that's right, mate. And he would look at me and go. <laughs> but by then we bonded with each other, even though we didn't understand what each other was saying. That didn't happen on this occasion. So I'm getting this, the Indian call centre worker, and I'm trying to explain. I'm going, I'm moving house. You haven't sent enough money. Here's the reference number. Here's the figures. There's been a mistake. I'm so tempted to do the impression of what happened next, but I'm not. So tempted. Anyway, now, so I get nonsense back. I'm like, I'm trying to stay calm. So I'm a man of the Lord. I'm a man of God, right? I'm a man of I've got shalom. That I've been preaching on it. So I'm like, no, no, you need to listen to me. Just, just please. I, I'm. Have you applied for a mortgage? Oh, I've done it. <laughs> yes. I got a mortgage. Need another. It's not sending enough money. I'll put you on hold. No, don't put me on hold. Ding, 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 ding. I'm like, oh no. Anyway, after I'm not kidding you, Karen is Karen is walking around the house now. Da 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 da. Going going to Chesterfield. <laughs> Everything's being packed up, and I'm like, I'm in my little room, going. The stress is amazing. Please, God, give thanks in all circumstances. You're right. So um, we carry on like this. And after about an hour, I get through to someone in the UK who is a manager who says, I totally see what's happened. What's happened is you're on a fixed rate mortgage and it's portable. I know, I said. We've, we've, we've deducted a penalty that shouldn't have been deducted. We shouldn't have done that. It's a mistake. Well, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to deal with this right now. And I'm going to get that money. <laughs> gone. Just gone. So, no. Because this has been an internal transfer. How do I find this beautiful angel? How do I? So, I phoned the number again. He went, ding, 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 ding. Are you phoning about your mortgage? Yes, like this. And eventually, I literally got back to this person and went, Have you got a mortgage? Yes, I've got a mortgage. And it started all over again. It took two and a half hours. It totally robbed my peace. Do you know what I mean? And then at the end of it, I'm like this. 
I'm never, never going to bank with that bank again. In fact, you know, if I walk past, I'm going to curse them that everyone gets attacked by bears. You know, it's like, <laughs> I hate this bank. Like, it just took 10 years off my life, and I hate everything about it. It's called, like, residue, unforgiveness, bitterness, chipped-upness, like, everything about it. And I don't know if you've ever... I mean, it's such a minor thing, really. It's a first-world problem. I'm moving from Bath to Chesterfield. It's not a big deal at the end of the day. If you have to park the lorry up, it's not a big thing. But do you know what I mean? You get caught up in those moments, and then it spirals into something. And you build it up in your head, and it becomes a big thing. And then I came out of that, and then we had, you know, we had to catch the cat and, you know, drive up. And the whole way, I'm like, ugh. Oh, so... You know, I'm even nervous. Am I going to get there? Am I actually going to get the kids? This really happened. I've got phone calls on the way. But I'm like, I'm never going to bank with them again. What a stupid bank. I'm not going to tell you who it was. But it was just like, and I still bank with them. So I did, over, I did overcome myself. But um, just hold that in your mind. Because you see a different spirit here. We're doing this series on words from the cross. Just a little mini one before we dig back into, back into Matthew. You've got a Bible with you. You can look at Luke 23. And uh, Jesus has been tried at this point. He's been led to the cross. Um, It's happening. Luke 23, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the other criminals. That place called the Skull, um, you know I preached on Abraham being called to sacrifice his son. That was in the shadow of that mountain. They crucified him there along with other criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, and this is more profound than we might give credit to it because we just breathe, breeze over these words, but they're so powerful. Bearing in mind, he's now being nailed to a lump of wood. He's been whipped within an inch of his life. I mean, he's been battered. There's no two ways about it. He's been absolutely, brutally battered, this guy. I mean, he's, he's on the edge of his life already, really. If you look at the punishments I used to meet out to people before crucifixion, this is whipping with fragments of stone, um, bone in the leather. This is being punched in the face. This is bad stuff. You know, it's not, it's not clean, like, artwork. It'd be a mess. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. And make no mistake, they didn't put that there, if you're new to this, they didn't put this is the king of the Jews as an honour. They're mocking him. The whole thing is mockery from start to finish. When they're saying, save yourself, they're, like, they're basically saying, you're God, are you? Go on, then. Go on, then. Prove it. That's what's happening. So they've, they've totally demol- demolished him. Like, Go on. Prove it. 
You can't, can you? That's what they're saying. Jared, you ever had that? When, when someone's challenging you and you know you can do something, you're trying to hold your dignity and not rise to it. I mean, but this is happening. I mean, that's so tempting, isn't it? But this is, this is in the face of brutal execution. And then one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. That's how mad this situation is. There's someone else been beaten up and battered and they're being nailed to a cross, and even they're having a go. So, I mean, that is insane. I mean, even in your dying moments, a point of execution, you're joining in with the people who are killing you. I mean, that, do you see that before? That is like, what is going on here? It's like intensity city. You know, this is huge stuff. Aren't you the Messiah? He said, save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for what we're getting and what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then this remarkable last verse, 43. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This <laughs> The passers-by are having a go at him. The soldiers are having a go at him. Everyone's mocking him. He's been nailed to a cross next to a criminal who's both mocking him and pleading with him at the same time. I mean, the whole thing is like horrific. And then straight away, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Now, if that was me... I would not be saying that. I know me. I'd like to think I'd have that level of dignity, but I wouldn't. What strikes me powerfully as I read that is that Jesus is being nailed to a lump of wood and his first thought is not himself. That is absolutely remarkable. His first thought is not himself. And more than that, he's not chipped up, is he? He hasn't got a chip on his shoulder in the slightest. You notice that? It's not like, you lot, hate you. You know what you're doing to me. Can't you feel what you're doing to me? It's not like that at all. He's actually, his heart is full of forgiveness. There's no residue. There's no whinging. He's not got the hump. In fact, I can remember when I was at Bible college in the 1800s, there was this, we had this lecture and um, this... Uh, this guy, um, we we set a bit of work, and this guy said, honestly, he said, please don't. He said, honestly, I'm planting a church. You know, I've got three essays to do this week. He said, you just piled us in another bit of work. I don't think you're coordinating your lectures with everyone else. There's too much going on. You know, can't you know? We can't turn this around in two weeks. Can't we have a bit more time? And our, our lecturer, he was a theologian, extremely posh said, well, I rather think that Jesus could have had the hump when he was nailed to a lump of wood. But he didn't, did he, boy? Like this. <laughs> Do your essay. <laughs> he thought. And he suddenly went, oh, fair point. <laughs> but it's true. It's actually true. Jesus didn't have the hump when he went to the cross. 
You think about the little things that wind us up. Quite a lot. Being charged inappropriately by the bank. Parking spaces, traffic jams, work colleagues, family, your kids. There's a lot in it. There's a lot conspiring against us. Go on holiday and it's raining, you get chipped up. Well, we do, don't we? Jesus went to the cross for me and for you and didn't have the hump about the fact you ignore him in the slightest. And that's absolutely amazing. I mean, because he's God, I mean, God casts his eyes across the generations that are to come and knows that there are millions of people who have turned their backs on him. And he still went to the cross. It's absolutely amazing. In no sense at all do you get anything here that is whinging. And what he said to me was, I read this and pondered on it again. Forgiveness that is Christ-centered is absolutely total and complete. There is no residue, no grudge, no whining, no whinging. It's absolutely total and complete. And that is a beautiful and remarkable thing. And I'll tell you something. It is one of the most powerful truths in the universe that when we can really and truly forgive like Christ forgave, you come to a place of peace like no other. And there is, there is something in this story today that just resonated in my heart for us a lot, actually, when I sat on my sofa and had a little look at it. I remember being in, uh, you know, I lead this sports week every year. It's one of, the little, one of the little perks. Every year I lead a sports week in Lanzarote, which sounds great. But actually, I live on the sofa with a load of blokes, and they, well, not all the blokes on the sofa, but there's uh, about 38 guys, and I, I sleep on the sofa in an open living room area because I, I just want to, you know, they all get the bedrooms and I do the talk. So, and I'm like the chaplain for the week, really. It's good, it keeps me sharp by hanging out with all these guys. But what happens is the people who go clubbing come to like three, four in the morning, then the people who want to do athletics get up at six and start, you know, cooking them, doing their porridge and everything. I'm like, ooh, by like day two, I'm like, oh, <laughs> it sounds really good, but I'm trashed by the time I get home, you know. Anyway, one year we had um, uh, a senior police officer come along who was not a follower of Jesus Christ. In any shape or form. Because what happens is, uh, a bloke who's a follower of Christ goes out there with his mate who's not a believer. That's how we work it. And so this guy came, he was a, a, a top-end like investigative officer, superintendent type rank, uh, in his, in his uh, about 42 years old. And he made it very clear to me. He was a man's man, and he said to me, I come for the sport, not all this other stuff. And I went, well, I still want you to turn up to the talks, fella. And he went, well, I'll do that out of honour, but I'm not really going to be listening because it's not for me, all this Jesus stuff, like the rubbish, really. Don't, just don't believe it. He said, what he said to me, he said, we come out of nothing, we were monkeys, and then we die, and then we're nothing. I went, happy days. It's cheery, isn't it? It's cheerful, that, isn't it? Oh, a cheery life philosophy. You're going to die, you're nothing. I've never quite, just an aside, I've never understood that. I mean, you can believe it, but it just means that I think I'm wasting my time bringing my kids up. 
Because one day, I mean, I put all this effort, you might not notice it, but I put all this effort into your life, and then one day you're just going to die and be a forgotten JPEG on a hard drive. I mean, I used to say an old black and white photo, but not anymore. Your little JPEG, your little file on the computer hard drive, something that probably get thrown away. Because you don't, most people here don't know their great, 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 great granddad is. So you want to live by that philosophy, it's just fine, it's a bit depressing. Anyway, we had these conversations during the week, as you can imagine, over a Diet Coke, me and the police officer, we'd have the odd chat. And then I found out that he was off proper duties because he had a chronically bad back. So he really bad. And um, it's cut a long story short, because there's a lot of detail in this, I was walking along what sort of beach they have at this place. It's more like stones. So we're walking along these stones by the sea. And I said to him, tell us your story then. You know, what's, what's your background? And he went into this story about how his marriage had fallen apart and he'd been with different women and none of that had worked out and he, the divorce hadn't gone through yet. And, and then he said, and my, and my sister... He said, died of cancer. I went, all right, how long ago? And he said, about six years ago. I went, all right, okay. I said, and how has that been for the family? And his eyes welled up with tears. And uh, and he, he, he said, I don't really want to talk about it. So it makes me very angry. He said, angry what? He said, well, if there is a God, I'm angry with God. I said, I thought you didn't believe in God. He said, no, but that's who I'd be angry with. And that fascinated him. I thought it was very honest, because a lot of people don't believe in God, get angry with God when they need to get angry with something. Uh, anyway, we met again, and um, I said to him, uh, just as a, an op- we talked about Jesus, we talked about the cross, we talked about Christian hope and peace. He said, I don't get it, don't believe it, you know, uh, but I said, mate, um, here's the thing. It's why you, what is one of the things that gets you about your sister's death? He said, I never got the chance to say goodbye. She died before I could say goodbye. And I'm so angry about that. So close to my sister. She, I couldn't get to hospital. She, she passed away. I never got to hold her hand and say goodbye. I said, okay. Now, it was just in the moment. I said, why don't you write a letter? He said, to who? I said, to your sister. I know she's gone. Write, write down what you would want to say to your sister. Just put it in a letter. And then burn it or throw it in the sea. Get it off your chest. He said, well, I've never said the things I want to say to my sister. I said, well, say it. I said, I know it's just, there's no magic in it. Maybe you just need to get some stuff off your chest. And I said to him, I went to him, listen, mate, I think you need a piece of Jesus, actually. He went, what do you mean? I said, I think you need a piece of Jesus. He said, what's that? So I explain the cross again. Because actually, what's happening here, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, when Jesus issues forgiveness, what's happening here is all the mess, all the pain, all the hurt, everything is getting heaped into Christ at that point. Like everything. Deep hurts, deep pain. Things we never talk to people about. It's all being pummeled into him. Because what the Bible tells us is that we accumulate all this mess, and Weight Watchers calls it sins with a Y, the Bible calls it sin with an I. We accumulate all this mess and we're self-centered and we live life our way and we accumulate damage. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he takes and we say, forgive me. 
please accept me as yours, I'll follow you now. All of that comes out from us, gets taken by Christ. That's why he had to die. I'm happy to explain that length afterwards to anyone who wants to listen because I love talking about that. And I said, and that gives us peace. All these things, your failed marriage, the stress, the other things you showed me, because there's a whole bunch of other stuff. Jesus died to take all that, fella. And you can have peace. You went, oh, I don't believe it. So it's a nice story. It's a fairy story. But he said, I'll write the letter. Anyway, later that evening, we all gathered for a cheeky beer and a talk. So I get all the guys get a beer in and I do a talk for half an hour. All around this sort of stuff. And he came in and he, because he's a bloke's bloke, he came in and he just sat down. Grabbed the beer and just sat there staring forwards. Halfway through my talk, he went, can I just interrupt you? I went, okay. He said, I've got something to say. I said, okay, do share. He said, I, my sister died of cancer. He said to all these guys, my sister died of cancer. I never got a chance to say goodbye. So I've been angry about it ever since. And I, I had a chat with Carl and I wrote a letter. And I felt a bit stupid doing it, but then I found myself crying while I was writing this letter. I said all these things to my sister, I wish I would have said. He said, then I went for a walk along the beach and I chucked it in the sea. He said, and then uh, I was talking to Carl about the peace of Jesus. He said, and I don't really get it. I don't totally understand it. But I prayed to God. I said, if you're there and you're real, can you speak to me? Can you give me a peace? I'm, I'm sorry that I've, I've been angry. Give me a piece. He said, instantly, the pain that I've been carrying in my back for six years has gone. He said, I feel amazing. And then, like, totally matter of fact, not even smiling, he went, and if you need a piece of Jesus, I suggest that you get praying and accept it because it's really good. <laughs> and he went, and that's all I've got to say. Went, that's all I've got to say. And he went, and back to the talk. <laughs> then we went out for a tuna steak and it was a beautiful evening of celebration. It's great. And I've seen that. Karen and I have seen it. It's not just me saying it. We prayed for people over the years. Often people with chronic conditions. I'm not saying every chronic condition. You need to hear me when I say this. I'm not saying every chronic condition is unforgiveness. But we've seen a lot of ME healed and chronic fatigue and back pains and constant migraines. I'll tell you why. Because you hold a grudge against someone or a bit of unforgiveness or a tinsy little bit of bitterness. I'll tell you what it does. It consumes your soul. It's not magic. What is in our hearts can damage our bodies. We, I remember once driving along the road and getting a, a sense of something for someone, going back to see a woman who's got chronic fatigue and just shared my heart with her about a thought I'd had while I'd been praying for her. And that evening was, was healed. We prayed for a young teenage girl once, didn't we? Who was so chronically ill for about 10 years, Karen and I. She came into my study and... She prayed for all kinds of hurts about her childhood and her background, some really tough stuff. I just watched the peace of God as she forgave people. Watched the peace of God touch her life. And she never went back. She's now working globally all over the world. She, this girl could not get out of an armchair. She was so ill and consumed with hurt and pain. When Jesus Christ forgives, it was total. And no matter what we carry in our hearts, if we forgive and it's total, you know the peace of Christ no matter what it is. And that's a tough message because some of us carry some very brutal things, some real tough damage. I understand that. And I know it's not an easy fix. And sometimes you have to navigate some pain. But when we truly forgive people, man, is that a powerful thing. 
And it was all accomplished by our Saviour being nailed to a lump of wood. And this is, this is the most, one of the most stunning passages you'll ever read in any book in all the history. What happened right there. It is the most amazing thing. It is the route to true peace and fulfilment and a life of hope. It really is. And I just wanted to say on this note, beware of small hooks in your life that have become deep tears. Because it only takes one little thing to get a hook in your life about someone or something and you don't deal with it and it can become a deep tear over time. You know, like a little snag in your clothing? It can just, it can all unravel, can't it? It just gets worse and worse and worse over time. I mean, I, I wear clothes to death, so I see this happen a lot because I don't like shopping. I think it's the worst thing. I think shopping is, is demonic. So I'd... I like to hold on to my clothes and I watch them slowly get consumed by decay. One little tear can become, one little hook in something can become a big tear. And watch for it. It could be in our family, it can be a relationship. We can outwardly say we've forgiven someone, but actually we haven't. And I tell you how you know when you've truly forgiven someone, you haven't got a barrier. There's no barrier between you and the other person again. You're not chipped up when you see them. You, you, you let go of any boundaries. You, you're at peace. You can walk past someone and it's okay. I, I, I've, I've been hurt before to the point where when I thought I saw someone in the street that was that person, my heart turned over. I thought I'd forgiven them, but I realised I hadn't. I had to deal with it. That's chewing me up inside. That's a small hook that can lead to a deep tear because it starts to change your perspective on life too. Once I often say to Karen, what I feel for me personally in my life and work is that I mustn't, I mustn't lose the ability to believe the best and give the benefit of the doubt because I think if I do that in my life and work, it would be different for you, but that's particular to me. I feel very attuned to this. If I embrace cynicism... If I allow that to take a root in me, if I, if I lose the ability to believe the best in someone who's hurt me and go again in that relationship, then I think the enemy will capture my heart and I'm stuffed. And then I change the way I view the world then. And it blunts and numbs the relationship, doesn't it? The point being, where does all this come from? Jesus could have legitimately <laughs> felt like that. The Father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's amazing. And I'll just tell you something else I picked up when I read this. And it's the reason why I read on. Did you notice this? Verse 35 onwards. The people stood watching and the rulers sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. And then they say it again, verse 37. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then one of the criminals are hung there, verse 39. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. Three times he's being killed, he's being murdered. And three times people say to him, Save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. He's getting it from the soldiers, he's getting it from the passers by, he's even getting it from the fellow who's being killed next to him. Save yourself. That's pressure. And I tell you, the amazing thing is, in Matthew 26, verse 53, Jesus says, Do you not know? He said, 
that I could call down 12 legions of angels now and my father would give them to me. If you want to do the maths on that, the average legion had 6,000 soldiers in it. That's 72,000 angels at least at the disposal of Christ. Three times people are saying to him, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. Now you might think, now he's going on about angels. Well, there's a spiritual world out there and Jesus said it for a reason. What he's saying is, if I wanted to be saved, I could take you lot out. One angel in Isaiah 37 took out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One. He had 72,000. That's a lot of angelic warrior power right there. That is Kung Fu angelic warrior power of an unprecedented level. Do you know how tempting that would be? You're being killed and you know the world's most terrifying military force is at your disposal should you want it. And your finger is on the button. Any minute you could press it and go, they're going, save yourself. Save yourself. Save yourself. I go, save this. Meep. <laughs> I would actually. Meep. <laughs> That's what I do. Check me out with my angels. I would. I just think we missed the remarkable compassion and self-discipline because do you know why he held it back? He held it back because he loves you. That's it. How amazing is that? He held back 72,000 angels because he loves you. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I've, whatever literature you read, whatever love film you watch, nothing will compare to that. Nothing. In the whole of history, now and going forwards, it is the most remarkable display of self-sacrifice in the universe. And that's why I follow him. That's why I love him. It's unprecedented. It's utterly remarkable. It's why I shamelessly tell people, so I don't hold back, so I don't care actually what people think, because they need to know. It's a beautiful saviour who loves humanity. He held back 72,000 angels of the, most, the world's most destructive power, because he loves you. Individually you. Not collectively you. Individually you is the most beautiful, astonishing an amazing thing, so that we can have shalom and peace. Oh, just so I want to say to you, you're carrying stuff. God, let it go. You know, you've got to forgive people. This, this is what we're called to do. This is how we live. No chips, no hooks, no residue. That's how our master lived. And, and it flows out of a selfless heart, actually. I, I do believe that sometimes we hold on to stuff because it feels good. Sometimes we want to hold on to something because it feels good. Or we think it does, but it's not as toxic. It, it just hurts. But the way of Christ is, save yourself, know my life's about others. Save yourself, know my life's about others. Save yourself, know my life's about others. 
is selfless outpouring of sacrifice for other people. It's a role model to us, this. No chips, no grudge. Total forgiveness and lives led to an outpouring for others. And do you know what I truly believe? And some of you here are followers of Jesus and some of you here aren't. But do you know what I think? When I see people doing selfless things in the world, whether they're Christians or not, I think that's the work of God's Spirit, actually. There is something in us that reflects the character of God when you see a selfless act. People who invest their lives into community. People who are helping the homeless or the poor, whether they're Christians or not. I think that is a reflection of God's character. And as a church, I just want to say we should look for these things and those people because there's something stirring in those hearts because it is the character of Christ, actually. Save yourself, no. My life is for others. When we say that today, could we all say that? Save yourself, no. My life is about others. I think it will please the Lord. And the Bible says that when we do that, actually he adds back to us. That's the amazing thing. You reap what you sow. Point your life for others. God will bless you. It's a powerful story. It is one of the most powerful pieces of literature in all of history, as I've said. So I'm going to read it one more time. And maybe you close your eyes and we'll use this as a prayer. And I, I, I tell you, I'd also just want to say while I do that, it, it might be that some of you here, you don't know Christ yet, you're not committed to follow him yet. Well, this is what you commit to follow, a saviour who loves you so much, held back 72,000 angels, such as his heart and love for you. And he died on the cross and rose again. He takes all the junk, all the mess, all the pain, deals with it so you can have peace. And not just peace, but a destiny. So you're never going to be a faded, forgotten JPEG on some hard drive. Actually, the Bible says you're remembered for eternity and you're with Christ for eternity. It's a beautiful thing. The decision you make to follow Jesus isn't just for now. It's an eternal promise. And I really believe that. I don't believe this life is it. There is more. That's, that's the whole reason why this church is here. So I'm going to read this passage. And it may be in your heart. You want to say, you know, for the first time, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me. I don't understand it all, but forgive me. And then I want you, while we're having a cup of tea, come and see me. Or during the worship, you're worshiping me. Come and see me. I'd love to talk to you about it. It may be that some of you here have been following Christ for a while. And you know you're holding stuff against other people. Well, come and see me. We'd love to pray for you. Andrew will come down with me and we'll, one of the other leaders, and we'll, we'll pray with you. Dan, if he can make his way over, we'll come and pray with you. Okay. Let me read this again. Let's use this as a prayer. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the other criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him, and they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, 
today you'll be with me in paradise. And if you sit here in these moments and you say, Jesus, accept me, then one day you will be in paradise with our Saviour.